We at Trinity Church are disciples of Jesus Christ who seek to know, love, and glorify God in Spokane Valley. And we do that by seeking to make more disciples for our Lord, to bring more people into his kingdom. That is what we have been commissioned to do, and that is what we seek to carry out. If you uh, are new here and want to know more about that, please come talk to me or Paul. Uh, you can find out more about us on our website at www.trinityspokanevalley.com. And there you can find some information about our beliefs, our history, uh, where we're at, uh, with all about why we're here. A really big important announcement, if you are, especially if you're new here this week, is that next week we will not be in this building. Next week we will be at Center Place up by uh, Mirabu Point, which is across the street from the YMCA. Uh, the address for that has been updated on our website. Thank you, Jacob. And uh, so that's where we'll be starting next week. Next week we'll have, still our service will be at 8.30, and equipping hour begins at 10.30. Speaking of equipping hour, there are different classes uh, or different things going on that you need to register for. Uh, we need you to register because we need to know what to supply, how many, how many to get supplies for. Um, the first thing that we'll be having for equipping hour is an equipping class for all the adults. Actually, it's for everyone who's sixth grade and older, uh, equipping the church series, and it's what is a healthy church. Um, registration for that, the deadline is October 2nd, because we, we need to get supplies, so we ask that you, or if you're interested in doing that, to uh, register by then. Also, there is Trinity Kids registration, so that includes all children who will be around for second hour only, the, the equipping hour. We need to have supplies for them as well. We're going to go through uh, a lesson for them. And if your kids are under four, we'll automatically put them into uh, a nursery care, and everyone that's between fifth, five years old and fifth grade will be doing a, a class. So we'll ask you to, to register for them as well if you're going to be there uh, during that time. Our next membership class is also available for registration. We're going to have that next one starting October 20th, or excuse me, 23rd. Uh, so the 23rd and the 30th will be our membership class dates. And the next members meeting, if you want to put it on your calendar, is November 13th. So I think that's it. We'll have everything. Uh, everything is updated on our webpage. Oh, we have another sermon series card, so to speak, that you can pick up at the back table. It has uh, the next preaching through Acts and Advent up through Christmas. Um, so it's a nice little bookmark format. You can stick that in your Bible. Uh, it has all the, the passages we'll be going through up through Christmas uh, as a, a reminder for you to pray and prepare your hearts as we come to that. And speaking of prayer, let's go to the Lord now and ask him to bless our time this morning. Father, we give you praise because you reign and you have sent your son to be our king. You are good and you seek our good through all that you give us, through your actions and your words. We confess that we often hang on to our treasonous desires, seeking to rule our own lives, to, to do things our own way, to do what is good in our sight and seeking independence from you. We give you thanks, though, that you have made us your own. You have sent your son to reconcile us, to redeem us, to bring us into your kingdom. You have given us every blessing in Christ, and we thank you for giving us your spirit and your word, which is a testimony of your witnesses, so that we may know you, 
so that we may love you and that we may glorify you. So we ask now that you would strengthen us, embolden us, increase our trust, give us hearts for the lost, give us an urgency for them to be winsome and gracious and faithful to your testimony. Pray for Paul now as he comes to preach that our, uh, his words would carry forth your power and your authority to save and sanctify. And we pray for us as well as listeners that our hearts would be open to be ready to receive your word and that by the power of your spirit and your word that we would be conformed to the image of your son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Jeremy. Exciting times here at Trinity Church. Moving locations. Who's excited about going over to Center Place next week? That's exciting, isn't it? And I'm, I'm opening up. I'm opening up to Acts using my little handy bookmark there that was made for us by someone. I'm not going to tell you who, but she did a great job. Eleni Mastronardi did a great job doing that. <laughs> So it's a little bookmark there. You, you grab one of those. It has all of our passages all the way through Christmas. And uh, also uh, noticing Advent there starting November 27th. So this is for you to put in your Bible, uh, to pray, uh, to prepare, and to unify us around God's word uh, through that little bookmark there. So pick up one before you leave. And just to be clear, our equipping class does not begin next week Our equipping class does not begin next week. It begins October the 9th. And so make sure you register for that. Now, if you don't register for the class, you can still come. But you may or may not have the resources uh, that we want to provide for you. So make sure you register for that by October 2nd. Register the kids so we know who's coming and know who we are responsible for. Okay? Please stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 starting in verse 12. Acts chapter 1 starting in verse 12. This is after Jesus ascended and they watched him ascend and the two men said, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, 
that is, feel the blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, we approach a passage of Scripture that seems to be one of those that really doesn't have a significant amount of relevance for the modern day reader. Now, we should never share those thoughts out loud, right? We should never actually say that's what we think, lest we be accused of diminishing the sufficiency of Scripture and God's purpose and giving us the scriptures, but we do think it to ourselves from time to time as we come to a place in scripture and we say, okay, well, that's nice, but it's not really the most significant of scriptures. Consider what has just happened in our context. Jesus has presented himself alive with many infallible proofs to his apostles And he has commissioned them to be his witnesses to all the world beginning at Jerusalem before he is taken up into the heavens with the promise that he will return just as he left. He also tells his apostles that they are to go into Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit to be given to them before commencing their mission. Really continuing his mission. That's what the mission of the apostles is, is to continue His mission. Then you consider the text to come right after this passage. In Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes, just as Jesus said, the Holy Spirit comes in power with great visible signs. And 3,000 people are brought to faith in Christ. Commencing the mission of the apostles here in the book of Acts, two powerful and exhilarating passages full of implication and importance for us. But in between those two passages, in between those two significant passages, what do you have? You have our passage today. You have a list of disciples. A reminder why there are only 11 disciples now and the choosing of the 12th to take the place of Judas. Some details of how many followers of Jesus there were and the focus of their unified prayer. All of it, good stuff, good stuff, but to be sure, not all that significant, especially in light of what comes before and what comes after this passage. 
You might even think to yourself, not out loud, again, couldn't Luke just have skipped this part? Maybe it was interesting to Luke. Or he just wanted to give some details in case his readers were curious. But for us today, it really isn't of great importance. When we come to this in our Bible reading, right, we, we read it, the, the list of the 12, and Judas, yeah, he was, uh, you know, the betrayer, and uh, they chose lots, and they chose another apostle. Okay, that's good. Now let's on to the good stuff, right? Well, as you probably guessed, if that's the way you feel about this passage, it is my delight this morning to disabuse you of any such notions this morning. What we have in this passage is the official beginning of the narrative account in the book of Luke. Everything to this point has been a summary of what has happened, and now the account begins. And how does Luke choose to begin? He begins by the choosing of the twelfth apostle due to the betrayal of Judas. And why does he begin here? This is important while we're reading narrative. We always want to ask why. Why did the writer, he could have chosen any way or any uh, information to include. He chooses purposefully this information to include right here. Why? Why does he do that? What's well, a choice he makes, a literary choice that Luke makes full of intent and purpose. When you come to a section that seems to be just filler to get you on to the next phase, ask yourself why did the author put this here and you will be amazed at what God intends to communicate to us. Luke purposefully places this information here not merely to inform us or to instruct us or to rather fulfill our curiosities, but to instruct us. He wants us to see something. He wants us to learn something. And by seeing what he wants to show us, he means to encourage us, to admonish us, to teach us and strengthen us. And as I said last week, this section here, as the rest of the book of Acts, demands a response from us. Here is what he wants us to see. Here is what he wants us to see. The writer Luke. He wants us to see that the mission of Jesus will not fail. The mission of Jesus will not fail. Remember, Acts is the story of the continuation of Jesus' mission to gather a people for his kingdom and the power of his Holy Spirit. And this section here that Luke begins with teaches us that his mission will not fail. And here we see three assurances. In this narrative section, three assurances that teach us Jesus' mission will not fail. We see first that the wicked will not succeed. The wicked will not succeed. Second, we see that the word of God will stand forever. 
And third, we see the witness to Jesus' death and resurrection. The witness will not be stopped. The wicked will not succeed. There is opposition to the mission of Jesus. Bred in the wicked hearts of men from every corner of the globe and in every place. But that opposition will not succeed. This will be a recurring theme throughout the book of Acts. The mission of Jesus to gather a people from every nation will be opposed at every step, in every place. It is never a smooth sailing for the people of God and for their mission. It is never easy. It is never without opposition. But we learn here that that opposition will not succeed. And what better to illustrate this reality than the tragedy of Judas? We see that those who entered the upper room were listed. You saw it there. But this list is not like the list we see in the Gospels where Jesus has chosen 12 disciples. Here there is a name missing. Luke gives you all the names to make that point. Count them. There are only 11 of them. One is missing. Before we move forward with Peter's explanation... Let's remember together the significance of the choosing of the twelve. Do you remember why Jesus appointed twelve? Why did he choose twelve disciples? Well, Luke 22, verse 28 reminds us. Do you remember that passage? Luke twenty-two twenty-eight. 28. Let me read it for you. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And catch this. And sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus appoints twelve disciples because there are twelve tribes of Israel. And they have a portion given to them. They have a a part in his leadership of his people. They will judge and rule over his people. He's going to give them a throne where they will rule judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We also see that the 12 apostles' names... This is in Revelation chapter 21, verse 14. The 12 apostles' names will be written, catch this, the na- their names will be written on the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. That is the capital city of God's new creation, his new heavens and his new earth. These 12 men serve as the new leadership for God's restructured Israel. God the Father has made a people, a new people, not doing away with Israel, but reforming and redefining, restructuring Israel. And these 12 apostles were given the privileged place of leadership 
the leadership of this people. Consider then. Consider then what Judas forfeit. Consider what Judas forfeit. Consider what was lost. And for what? We see that Judas had a heart of greed. Now many have speculated, maybe he was frustrated and disappointed with what he saw as Jesus' trajectory. Maybe it wasn't what he was expecting and he was frustrated and disappointed with that. Maybe he was angry and sought vengeance. You remember right before he goes out to betray Jesus, he is rebuked. Remember the scene where he is rebuked? The woman comes forth with a valuable box of ointment and breaks it. And Judas says, hey, hey, what, shouldn't, it, shouldn't she have taken that and sold it for the poor? And Jesus rebukes him. Maybe, maybe that was the last straw for Judas. But we know he was greedy. He saw an opportunity to cash in and make a profit. He sought his own interests above the interests of everyone else. What a tragic choice. He not only ruined his life and lost his life, he ruined his eternity and lost the privileged place that Christ had given him. And for what? For a few coins. For some money. But Judas is not abnormal in this, is he? We see all the way through Scripture, the false prophets in the Old Testament are greedy for gain. They are willing to lead others astray so that they can benefit monetarily, materially. We see this in the New Testament with the false teachers, greedy for gain, wanting to use religion or even Scripture for their profit There have always been those who oppose the truth, even from the inside. But we also see in that same Luke 22 passage, we see earlier in that chapter, Luke chapter 22, verse 3, a note about Judas that expands our understanding of his sin. There in chapter 22, verse 3 of Luke, it says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. I believe this is a simple reference to the fact that in Judas' sin, he was working and doing the bidding of Satan himself. Satan means adversary, the one who opposes That's Satan's name, the one who stands in opposition. The reality is that Judas is doing Satan's work. And that ties his sin to the bigger story of Scripture. You see, the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3 refers to Satan and all of those who join with him in opposition to the seed of the woman, to Jesus. And by inference, those that are his Satan opposes the king. In the counsels and plans of the wicked. 
The kings of the earth, as we read in Psalm 2, the kings of the earth plot to oppose God's kingdom and the proclamation of his king. At every step where the kingdom is proclaimed, there is opposition. And where, we see in the book of Acts, where does that opposition begin? Where does it begin? The story of Acts begins here. Where does the opposition begin? It begins from within the leadership of God's new people. One of those who is told he will sit on a throne to judge the people of Israel. The promise of this future for Judas is not enough. He betrays the king. And thus, Judas serves as an object lesson for all to see. And here is the lesson. The wicked will not succeed. And their judgment, the judgment of the wicked, will be awful. I want you to sit and just consider that statement I just made, just for a moment. The wicked will not succeed, and their judgment will be awful. Luke gives us a description of this man's judgment in verse 18. This is Luke's editor's note here verse 18 he said now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out you remember you remember the flannel graphs that you used to use in sunday school remember flash of cards this one didn't make the cut okay this is one of those you didn't get included Let me encourage you as you're teaching through the Bible, don't cut, out, don't cut out the difficult stuff. As you're teaching kids the scripture, don't cut out the difficult stuff. Don't G-rate the Bible, okay? Don't make the Bible G-rated. It's not G-rated. And what, what Luke wants us to see is that the wicked will not succeed no matter where they're from. The wicked will not succeed and their judgment will indeed be awful. And that's what Judas serves to illustrate for us. There are some now who want to see a contradiction between Luke's account of Judas' demise and Matthew's account in chapter 27 of that gospel, but this is not the case. Each writer simply shares details of Judas' demise that serve their purpose in writing. Notice here in Luke's account, he doesn't mention, Luke doesn't mention the regret that Judas felt, which he did feel. I mean, he had spent three years with these men, and he betrayed them, and he felt regret almost instantly. But that regret was not repentance. He felt regret for what he had done, sorrow over what he had done, but not true godly repentance. Matthew tells us that he went out and hung himself. Luke doesn't tell us that. Luke's focus is on the judgment and disgrace of Judas. And that this disgrace was known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now many scholars believe that Judas did indeed hang himself, as Matthew tells us, and that he was left hanging there 
and wasn't cut down until his corpse had been rotting there. And as he was cut down, as his body had swollen up, he was cut down and on cutting him down, he fell headlong and burst open so that all could see his bowels. The point is that the judgment was clear and it was awful. Don't don't miss this. He had forsaken a throne. He had forsaken a throne and a foundation with his name written on it of the new city. He had forsaken a throne and a foundation of the new city with his name written upon it for what? For a field instead named in honor of his rotting corpse. The wicked will not succeed and their judgment will be awful and all will see it. Before we move on to the next point, I think it's important for us to stop and to consider the judgment of the wicked that was poured out upon Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered for the wicked. Not not for his own wickedness, but for our wickedness. You want to see the awful judgment against wickedness. The awful judgment poured out by God against wickedness. Look at the cross. That is where you see sin's awfulness there. You want to see how awful your sin is. Look at the cross. That's where you see the awfulness of your sin. And the judgment that is deserving upon our heads. Jesus suffered it. The awfulness of sin and the awfulness of judgment. The wicked will be judged, but Jesus was judged for the wicked, for his enemies. See how awful our sin is before God. See it in the judgment that Christ suffered. All of us, by nature, oppose God and his kingdom. All of us. None of us are good. The cross illustrates for us how awful our sin truly is. Have you received the judgment that Christ suffered? Have you received that by faith as your payment for sin? Was there salvation available to Judas? Absolutely. But he rejected the salvation. Do not reject salvation this morning. As you are sitting there this morning hearing this, there is judgment for the wicked. The wicked will not succeed. Those who oppose God and his kingdom will not succeed and their judgment will be awful. But that awful judgment has already been paid in Christ and it can be yours. That judgment that has been paid through Christ can be yours. And you can be saved from judgment. Don't reject it. Don't throw it away. 
Don't be like Judas. The wicked will not succeed. Those who oppose Christ's mission will not succeed, but by contrast, the word of God will stand forever. Peter attributes what happens with Judas to the fulfilling of Scripture. You see that there? Verse number 16. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and it was allotted his share in this ministry. The apostle gives us a valuable lesson here on the doctrine of inspiration. The scripture which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. David is speaking his own words, but somehow the Holy Spirit is speaking in those very same words. These are the words of God by the mouth of David through his Holy Spirit. The words that David speaks in his own mind, under his own power, are the words breathed out by God. Wondrous mystery, the doctrine of inspiration. And this is its essence. God speaks his word by means of his Holy Spirit through human authors. Here, Peter says that the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas. What does he mean by that? Did David know about Judas? That's not what he's saying. So what is he saying? What's important to consider the two texts that are quoted here. Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Now, now when do you come, when you come in your Bible reading to passages that are quoted in the Old Testament or somewhere else, do you go and look those places up? Good. You should. Zion, that's a good thing. Let's consider the two texts very quickly. Psalm 69, Psalm 109, he quotes them here. He says, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. By the way, if we didn't have kids here, those moments would never happen, right? We want those kind of moments. Those are good things. Kids in the service are wonderful. So, what is Psalm 69, Psalm 109 all about? Both of these psalms, if you go back and read these psalms, which I would encourage you to do, both of these psalms are spoken by David as king of Israel. And in both of them, David is pleading with Yahweh, with God, to bring judgment upon those that oppose him. David is praying what we call an imprecatory prayer against his enemies. These are prayers of David to bring judgment upon the wicked. In David's case, they are taking advantage of his compromised position, right? After his sin with Bathsheba, he's weakened and his enemies take advantage. God has disciplined him and his enemies are taking their chance even from within his own house. Even from within David's house, there are those who plot his demise. The, the similarities are there. Do you see that? David prays. 
that the efforts of these enemies would not be successful. And that they would suffer judgment for their attacks against him. You see the picture. David as the king of Israel, the anointed of Yahweh, serves to point to the ultimate king. The ultimate anointed one. The enemies afflicting David serve as a type or a picture of the one who betrays Jesus from within his own leadership structure. Do you see it? God heard David in his own day and delivered him, but that is not the ultimate point. 1,000 years later, the father is still answering the prayer of his king. Those who would oppose his anointed king will not succeed, but will be judged. The Father is answering the prayer of his king. The wicked will not succeed, but will be brought to judgment. And do you see the subtle yet plain implication involved in this realization that the Holy Spirit inspired these scriptures The betrayal of Judas, get this, the betrayal of Judas Judas was according to the plan of God. Jesus choosing Judas was not an accident. The Holy Spirit spoke of it a thousand years before it happened. This was not outside of the plan of God. Jesus didn't make, make a mistake in choosing Judas. Judas betraying Jesus was not outside of God's control. And this again is the wonderful truth of the sovereignty of God. Not the last time we will see this in the book of Acts. The wicked make their plans. The wicked take their counsels together. But God remains sovereign. Their plans and their purposes are not outside of his control. He is not reacting. He is not surprised. Their evil plans are under his sovereign control. He's ordained all of it. This is the God that we serve. Sovereign God. Not only does Jesus triumph over the plans of wicked men. Not only do the enemies of God's anointed king fail and experience judgment. But it is exactly as God's word says it would be. It is according to God's word. The word of God will stand forever. The word of God given by a sovereign God will stand forever. I want to stop here and just give a word regarding our prayers against the wicked. Is it right to pray against the wicked? Are imprecatory prayers, prayers that should find themselves in our mouths today? How would you answer that question? I believe we should pray against the wicked. But it is very important how we define who the wicked are and where we aim our imprecatory prayers. There are many who would pray 
against those who would seek to overthrow the United States of America. Listen, the United States of America is not what God's kingdom consists of. There are many who would pray against those who would be difficult in their life. No, that's not what imprecatory prayers are for. We should pray that the wicked will not succeed in opposing God and his king and his kingdom. And guess where those imprecatory prayers begin? They begin by aiming at our own sin and our own wickedness. That's where our prayers against wickedness should start. God, do not... Allow me to oppose you and your king and your kingdom with my own sin. That's where it should begin. Are there wicked who still plot to overthrow God and his king? Absolutely. And we should pray according to God's word that they would not succeed. We should pray against wicked plans and counsels. But be careful. It's not your own kingdom you're seeking to establish, but that of God. The word of God will stand forever. I thought of Melinda Ferguson. The Bible stands. Remember that song, Melinda? That's right. She's singing it, see? The Bible stands. I would get you up here to sing it, but we're running out of time. I had that, I had that put in here to get you up, but we're just going to hold off for a minute. And this leads then, the Bible stands, the word of God stands forever, and this leads to our final assurance then from this text. The wicked will not succeed, the word of God will stand forever, and the witness to Jesus' death and resurrection, the witness to Jesus will not be stopped. There are 11 apostles now that Judas has forfeit his place, but that does not end the mission. Think about that for a moment. The situation before us in this chapter, let's, let's pretend for a moment that we don't know what happens in uh, Acts chapter 2. Let's pretend that we don't know what happens in Acts chapter 2. Is there, more, is there a more inauspicious beginning that could be made to this movement or mission that is, that is intended to, to go to the ends of the earth? Is there a more inauspicious beginning that could be had? They haven't even started yet. And already one of their ranks has betrayed the main leader to his death. Maybe a forced illustration. But we are here at the beginning of our way as a church. And we're about 120 people. So let's say I pick 12 men to be elders, leaders. We're going we're gonna to do this right. We're going to have 12 men lead in this church and we're going to, we're going to lead in godliness and, and accomplish the mission. But one of these men is a rotten apple. And one of these men that we pick to lead us turns and murders me as your pastor. Again, a little forced illustration. But imagine what that would do to our church. Just think about what that would do to our church. We only got 120 people. 12 men chosen. They were supposed to be godly men. We had one one teaching pastor and 12 men. And one of these guys gets crossways and kills the teaching pastor. And 
I mean, would, would our church continue at that point? And what would be our reputation? Would people say, oh, let's go to that church. That's a healthy church. No. No, it, it doesn't seem that this is the beginnings of a worldwide mission where the message of Jesus will spread to all the nations of the world. It doesn't seem that way from the outside looking in. But this, once again, this, this reality, once again, gives evidence to the veracity, the truthfulness of Jesus' resurrection. There's no way this group of people continues on unless the resurrection of Jesus is true. Unless they have seen him by many infallible proofs. The truth of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death and resurrection must be testified. They once again look to Jesus to give them direction as to who would be chosen to fill Judas' vacated spot. And don't miss the reference here. Don't miss the reference here to prayer or miss the spirit of unity in prayer mentioned earlier in this chapter. It says they were all there with one accord. Verse 14, they were there together with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Do you see the transformation that has taken place in these men? They are sharing now in the same attitude that their master demonstrated while he walked with them. These men who fell asleep at prayer in the hour of Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion, they are now themselves dependent, not upon their own strength or strategies. They're dependent upon him in prayer, unified in prayer together. They're no longer bickering about who will be the greatest among them. The last time they were in an upper room together, that's exactly what they were doing. Fighting and bickering with one another. No, they are now unified together in prayer. They know that there must be another witness and he must actually be a witness. Think in terms of a courtroom, right? If you're going to give a witness or take the stand, you better have first-hand testimony Two men fit that requirement. Two men have been with them since the beginning. And the apostles asked the Lord for his guidance by lot. They put stones with names in a bag and they draw lots. Now this gives them Matthias. Matthias is appointed to be the replacement for Judas. It is also here where we see an example of how Acts is not prescribing for us how we should choose our leadership. We don't, we're not going to put names in a bag and draw them out to decide who our elders are. Nor is it teaching us apostolic succession. It's not telling us that when an apostle dies, we should seek a successor to that office. No, there are only 12 thrones. There are only 12 thrones. No, instead, the point is clear. The witness to Jesus Life and ministry and death and resurrection, that witness will not be stopped. The lot is cast, the position is filled, the witness of Jesus will go forth. And is, is this our conviction as we think about evangelism? This is not often the conviction that accompanies a call to evangelism, is it? Do you remember when Jesus, do you remember when Jesus went into Jerusalem in the Triumphal entry. 
And he was walking in and they were crying out, Hosanna, son of David, save us. That's what Hosanna means. Save us now, king, son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And there were children. There were children crying out, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, son of David. There were children crying out. And the religious leaders looked at Jesus and said, Shut them up. Tell them to stop saying these things. And what did Jesus say? He said, if they are quiet, if they are silent, the rocks will cry out. Because you cannot stop the witness to who I am. And this is what Acts teaches us. You cannot stop that witness. The call to evangelism isn't a call reflecting God's need for you or for me. He doesn't need you to accomplish his mission. He doesn't need me to accomplish his mission. He doesn't need your gifts. He doesn't need your abilities. He doesn't need your availability. He doesn't need us to do this. He will accomplish it. It will go forth. It will not be stopped. And the call to evangelism is a call to participation with a privilege to join with this unstoppable mission. So what is our response? As I said before, the book of Acts is not just a fancy story that could interest or satisfy our curiosities. This is a text that demands a response from us, from God's people. It demands a response. So what is our response? Let me, let me just give you a couple. There are so many implications that actually come out of this passage. This, this is narrowing them down, okay? It would be good for you to sit and, and think and, and think about implications that come out of the truths that we have rehearsed this morning. Let me give you one. This was something that personally struck me in my own life. Do you often pray the prayer Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. Start the prayer against wickedness with your own heart. You don't want to be found opposing the king or his mission. And you say, well, not me. Well, Judas stands as a warning to us, doesn't he? The opposition to the king and his kingdom often comes from within. How often churches have been ripped apart by the sin of its members. This is important for us. When we confess our sin, listen, confession of sin is not only about your relationship with God. It's not just this personal issue between you and God that you need to confess to clear the air between you and God so that you can have sweet fellowship. That's also important. But your sin Your sin impacts the mission. Your sin impacts all of us. Your confession of sin and dealing with your own sin is about the mission that all of us are a part of. It impacts the unity of the church. It opposes the mission. I implore you, all of us to to develop this discipline of starting with ourselves and praying this prayer, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. Before Before we speak ill of someone else in the fellowship, look at your own sin. Before we turn to thoughts of bitterness or vengeance, look at your own sin. How am I opposing the unity and the mission of the church?
Another response is a question. Simple question. Where is your faith planted? What is it that gives anchor to your faith? The word of God is unbreakable. The word of God stands forever. The word of God is sufficient in everything. It says, it is all you need for faith. This is why we memorize scripture, by the way. This is why we memorize scripture. This is why we meditate upon scripture. I was asking that of someone the other day. What it, how does God work his power, the power of his word in our hearts and minds? How does he do that? Is it just by reading and somehow it magically works? No, we've got to meditate on it. Meditate on the truth. Let it, let it do its work in your heart. God's word will stand forever. Memorize it. Meditate on it. His word defines reality. Not the other way around. His word is what will stand the test of time. It is not a fad. It is not a trend. The word of God is unbreakable. Where is your faith planted? What other sources of truth do you look to to give you answers for life? Are you, are you worried as you look at the world around us? Are you brought to worry and anxiety as you look at the world and all that the world is involved in today? Are you worried? Look to the word of God. The wicked will not succeed. The word of God will stand forever. The witness to Jesus in his death and resurrection will not be stopped. Why are we worried? Do we believe these truths? And I just said this, but the witness will not be stopped. This is important for us to consider. God calls us to this mission as a privileged participation with him. Churches will be planted. Mark it down. I want you to hear that. Churches will be planted. People will be brought to faith in Christ. People will be sent out from those churches to take the gospel to the corners of the earth. This is a fact. It is a surety. This is what he's doing. The only question is, will we be part of it? That's the question. Not on whether or not it will go forth to all the nations of the earth, but will we be a part of it? His mission will not be stopped. How will we be a part of it? Give us eyes, Lord, to see that and to believe that. And then last, I want each of you to ask yourself, are you numbered? Are you numbered among those who are for Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus? Are you for him? Or are you against him? Be warned by this passage this morning. Be warned of the judgment that is sure. The wicked will not succeed and their judgment will be awful. Be warned of that coming judgment. But look to Jesus this morning. And his sacrifice for the wicked. Look to Jesus. He has bore the wrath of sin upon his own life, his own body. He bore the wrath of God.
for sin. The awfulness of sin is demonstrated in his death. And that sacrifice can be yours as your payment for sin and this judgment. Be saved this morning. Turn from your sin. Turn from the opposition. Turn from the hardness of heart. Turn from the pleasures, the fleeting temporary pleasures of sin that you think you can't live without. Turn from those and by doing so, turn from the judgment that they will bring upon your life and upon your eternity. And look to Jesus and his sacrifice. Put your faith in him and be saved. Be rescued from your sin and from its judgment. Father, we thank you for this word here in the book of Acts. A passage that seems insignificant on first glance and yet as we look intently at it, it teaches us truths that we need to hold to every day Lord, I thank you that you and your mission will not be thwarted. The wicked will not succeed. I pray for those here who are not believers. And there are several here who are not believers. I pray for them that they would see the judgment that's coming, but that it is not a judgment they have to endure. It is not a judgment they have to realize Because you have put forth your son, God, Jesus Christ, as an atonement for sin. And they can be saved if they will look to him and his salvation, his sacrifice for them. I pray for each of us that do call ourselves Christian here This morning we would look upon our own sin first. We would see our sin first before looking at the sin of others. That our prayers against the wicked would not be selfishly motivated, but they would be motivated by your kingdom. And Lord, we pray that now, that you would not allow the wicked to succeed in thwarting your kingdom your mission. I pray that you would strengthen our faith in your word, your unbreakable, infallible, inerrant word given from your very mouth that it would shape our reality and be the foundation of our reality and that you would find here a church that is willing and ready to be a part of the unstoppable mission that you are carrying forth in this world. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to believe and wills to obey you. We pray all of this in your name for your glory. Amen.